Well, good morning once more. Please open with me in your copy of the Scripture to Daniel chapter 9. Special welcome to our visitors. It's your great fortune to not have to hear passing through an apocalyptic piece of prophecy out of Daniel. And instead, um, we get a reprieve from the apocalyptic prophetic genre this morning. Our only one, by the way, until we finish the rest of the book. But we're going to get a reprieve in the form of a heart-wrenching prayer that forms the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9. And these verses give us a profound but very straightforward glimpse into what we have already seen to be true about Daniel, that for Daniel, prayer was everything. Prayer was everything. His faithfulness in prayer was so consistent, if you recall, that his opposition could even plot to bring him down by it. And so when we see an example like this, from a man like this, particularly in light of the fact that prayer is constantly reported as one of the most difficult spiritual disciplines in the Christian life, and for many reasons I believe that to be true, we hear, when we see an example like this from a man like this, our ears should perk up and our focus should sharpen. Because this right here is a treat. This right here is a treat. That's not to say that the rest of the book of Daniel isn't a treat too. Okay? It's a little tougher treat, still a treat. But this right here, it, it is not complicated. doesn't really require even very much commentary. It's kind of a sermon that in many ways preaches itself, and yet what it holds for us is immeasurably valuable. And so I want to challenge you to listen through that lens this morning, today, even before you read the first verse of the text. I want you to ask yourself, how might I emerge from this place today, even as I'm passing through, as I live here, whatever, with some insight or encouragement or mindset shift that will make my prayer life just a bit richer? Perhaps far richer, but at least a bit richer as a result of what we see today. The chapter opens with some critical historical information. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. By the way, this is not the main point, but when we talked about Darius and kind of the lack of record there, it was Cyrus who conquered Babylon, but then Darius replaced Belshazzar. What was going on? This strongly confirms what we already suggested, that he was made king. After all, Cyrus, hey, he had a kingdom of his own and a citadel and a palace over in Persia. He's not going to go relocate just because he finally conquers an anemic Babylon. And so what do you do? You appoint a vice regent over that area, and that is Darius. He was made king. It was the first year of Darius. It says, I, Daniel, verse 2, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He says that I, and this is when Daniel is an older man, an older man. He's looking through the scriptures, the Jewish documents, and a circulator in the community, one way or another. 
And he stumbles upon Jeremiah's promise, his prophecy of the 70 years that we heard read in the second scripture reading. That God would, at the end of 70 years, punish Babylon and he would wipe them away. And you might start to see how the the historical significance then, right? And how it particularly energized Daniel toward prayer because Babylon just fell. Imagine Babylon falling and you find this prophecy that says in 70 years God is going to judge Babylon and restore His people. That's what Daniel found. The 70 years, if the promises are true, then the end is at hand. And notice, he doesn't have some kind of fatalistic response. Oh well, let's just kind of wait for it to happen. No, he prays for what is promised. He prays for what is promised. And the primary shape of that prayer is one of confession. Which is the subject of verses 3 all the way through 15. It says, Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer, and please for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This disposition of grief, this disposition of mourning, this disposition of repentance... Lament, deep sadness. And then he starts his confession in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. I just want to pause to say, notice that he doesn't run to the matter at hand before grounding his prayer in the nature of the covenant-keeping God. He is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And that provides hope that perhaps the prayer will be heard. And that perhaps God will be merciful. He says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. And starting right here, if you're a note taker or someone who marks in your Bible or something... I want you to keep a running tally of how many ways he characterizes descriptions of disobedience. Just in this verse, we have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, turned aside. Sin, done wrong, acted wickedly, turned aside. And I want you to also notice the incredible first-person language he adopts here. This is truly remarkable because Daniel, in all accounts, is a righteous man. Why is he using the first-person plural, we? You know our tendency? I won't speak for you. You know what my tendency, my heart would be? Pray for these people over here who are doing these things. I've been getting it done over here. That's not what he does. I've been faithful. I'm praying out my window three times a day. Look at everyone else. Pray and let's pray for these people. God... No, he he says we. He's going to say later he's confessing his sins and the sins of the people. He does not divorce himself from the sinfulness of the people despite of being a man who walks rightly before God. And yet he does not walk perfectly before God. And that's going to be important as we move through. Continuing on, he gives a little bit of a larger context. We have not listened. Not listened. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings. 
our princes and our fathers to all the people in the land. So you spoke. It's not like we did this in ignorance. We just didn't listen. We just didn't listen from the top to the bottom. From prince to pauper. We we just didn't listen. He says that to God belongs righteousness, but to us, verse 7, open shame. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. And And as at this day, to the men of Judah to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near, those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery. Another word. Treachery with which you have driven, excuse me, the treachery that they have committed against you. Remember R.C. Sproul saying that sin is reaching for the crown and plotting for the throne in the kingdom of God. Is that how you think of your sin? treachery. You think of your low-grade bitterness against people in your family as acted, acting wickedly towards folks in your home. Reaching for the crown, plotting for the throne in the kingdom. This is the kind of language that Daniel uses here. Open shame. Whether they got left in the land, whether they were scattered near, far, whatever, what belongs to them, what is theirs is shame, open shame. And he essentially repeats the same things. He's going to do so a couple of times. To us, verse 8, O Lord, belongs open shame. Again, from the top to the bottom, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And he provides us with another contrast, again, between the people's action and God's. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against Him. Another word. For we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. They have shame. God has righteousness and mercy. And the picture that's going to emerge is this. They need some of what God has to cover what they have. God has has righteousness and mercy. To them belongs shame. And they're going to need what God has to cover what they have. That's the idea. He reiterates the inclusiveness of this transgression. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And then he zooms out even further in the redemptive story, past the prophets, all the way back to the law that we heard read in the extended, I know, I know it was an extended scripture reading. But I wanted you to hear the covenant curses. I wanted you to hear the covenant curses because this is what Daniel's talking about right here. The second half of verse 11. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. 
People like to say that God is faithful to his promises. But what they really mean is God is faithful to his promises for blessing, which is true. But if this is any indicator, God is also faithful to his promises to curse. Great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. God will chastise his own because he has promised to do so, and he will do it for their good and for his glory. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. And he ties down this aspect of God's faithfulness even further. Look at verse 12. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us. And against our rulers who ruled us by bringing up on us a great calamity for under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. He gives us this window of how devastating things are. God has been faithful to treat the unfaithful exactly as he promised. God has been faithful to treat the unfaithful exactly as he promised. Destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem to a Jew who hasn't been lulled into a new normal in Babylon. There's nothing worse that could happen. And verse 13 takes us to this critical point of theological and kind of social tension in the prayer. Look what it says. He says, as it is written in the law of Moses, again, reference to the curse, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. And even we as readers are a little taken aback by this one. I mean, this is a step... Further than saying the prophets didn't, you know, the prophets uh, preached and we didn't listen to them, so here we are in judgment. But he's saying, no, here we are in judgment and we hadn't even done anything about it. Here we are, we're suffering the covenant curses. Where is our repentance? Where is our corporate confession? And whatever has happened, that hadn't happened. We're just sitting in it. Why? Do you not know God is a God of steadfast love and and abounding in mercy, even despite what He's decreed? We see this over and over in Scripture. It is because of our disobedience that the Lord has kept it. He preserved it. Listen to the language of verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done. We have not obeyed His voice. And just as Daniel has zoomed out to the prophets for context and the law for context, he zooms out one more time and he gives us his widest angle lens. His widest angle lens. And now, O Lord our God, verse 15, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, the the central deliverance event of the Old Testament And the people of God, the Exodus, takes us all the way back to the Exodus. And now, O Lord God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done 
wickedly. He obviously, again, repeats the refrain of the people's sinfulness. But he takes us back where God led his firstborn out of Egypt. Made a great name for himself. And it's the same great name that Moses sought to protect when the people disobeyed as a mediator. Remember this? Exodus 32 Decide to make a calf out of gold, almost certainly out of Egyptian gold. They plundered the Egyptians. Slaves didn't have much gold. The first whisper of going back to Egypt, already turning away from God. Moses goes up on the mountain. Aaron, kind of the associate pastor down there, lets him get away with idolatry, contributes to making this thing. What happens? The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone. Let my wrath, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order, that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. And instead of saying, whoa, that sounds good. Moses nation, whatever nation, whatever you would nationize that. Of Mosesites or something. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said this, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand? Verse 12, listen to Moses' concern for God's name. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster Against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I promise I'll give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. So, what is Daniel doing here? Daniel stands in the gap for the people of God. And he pleads to God. He pleads to God. After 13 verses of explicit confession, prefaced by his understanding of God as a covenant God, highlighted by the sin of the people, capped by this reference to the Exodus, he turns to his actual petition in verse 16. O oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. He says, in a way that it accords with your righteous actions, your righteous character, turn your wrath away from us. Because despite the fact that our shame is self-inflicted, your name is taking a shot before the nation's. For the sake of your name, which has become more explicit even in the next verse, for the sake of your name, even though this is self-inflicted, would you please turn your wrath from us? One scholar puts it like this. He said, the Lord, uh, excuse me, uh, the, the Lord had already ruined his own reputation when he gave Judah's king and temple vessels into Nebuchadnezzar's control. It's chapter 1 of Daniel. It was part of his judgment on Judah, but as so often, the media didn't get it right. 
The popular interpretation was that Yahweh was simply another little league deity unable to keep his provincial people from being steamrolled by mighty Babylon and her victorious gods, Marduk and Nebo. Babylon's past helps and ages uh, Babylon's helps in ages past, their hopes for years to come. Yahweh seemed to be just another poor choice in the world's cafeteria of divine also rans. Daniel pleads with Yahweh to reverse all this and to restore his own reputation and name. Again, that's made more explicit in verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Sinclair Ferguson said that when we can get the phrase, for the sake of your name, O Lord, from our head and lips into our heart, then we will have found a genuine motive for prayer. Not the only motive. A genuine and perhaps foundational element, motivation for prayer. Oh my God, verse 18, incline your ear and hear. Hear us, God, he's saying. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. And then we're going to hear a familiar phrase this morning. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And by the way, this is not just a little truism. Well, of course it's not according to my righteousness. Remember David... David pleads that God would deal with him according to his righteousness. Remember Psalm 7? Oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there's any wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord. Listen to what he says. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, to our New Testament Pauline ears, like, whoa, he didn't read Romans 3. There's no one righteous. Not one. What's he saying here? What he's saying, David's saying here, I'm not asking to get out of something that I created because of my own wickedness. I'm just asking if I have walked righteously before you, not perfectly, righteously before you here, then deliver me. But that is exactly not what Daniel says, because that's not what they have to offer. There is no sense in which they have any righteousness on on the basis of which to make their plea. They dare not appeal to God based on their righteousness, lest they simply get more justice. Not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy, O God. He ends this prayer with a series of these fervent, earnest, staccato-sounding like exhortations. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, my God. 
Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And so the prayer ends in the middle of an apocalyptic prophetic section of this book. Daniel has discovered a promise that motivates him to pray this prayer of confession and asking the Lord to turn from his anger. What is it that we can learn from this prayer? A lot. Way more than I have time to discuss. But let's talk through a few things together. First is that Christ is the righteous advocate who hears our pleas. Daniel again clarifies that he's making his prayer for himself and behalf of the people, not because of his righteousness. But we are actually in a slightly different position than Daniel. Because the promised Messiah has come. He lived a perfectly righteous life, atoned for sin, rose from the dead, and now Christ Himself, the one to whom we are united by faith, is our mediator and the great high priest of our confession. That allows us to pray words like Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, that we do not have a priest, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one that is every respect tempted as we are, yet was, was without sin. And so, what, is, what follows from that? It follows that we can boldly approach, approach, with confidence, approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, we have a foundational confidence in prayer because of the righteousness of another. Because of the righteousness of another. He is our advocate with the Father, 1 John 2.1. He lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25. He's at the right hand of God interceding for us, Romans 8.34. And if the wonder of this reality has faded for you just because you've been doing this and thinking about these things for so long, because that happens to me, it does. It happens to me. I want you to think about trying to explain to Daniel that one day, one day, God would intercede for His people before God. He wouldn't even know how to process it. He would not even be able to... That would be so unbelievable that I would suggest his mouth would be open. So if you're here today thinking, my prayer life is terrible. My prayer life is terrible, especially especially my confession before God and, and asking for forgiveness in prayer. There's great news for you. Christ is the same advocate for people whose prayer lives are terrible. He didn't change just because you struggle, which means there's no time like the present. There's no time like the present. There's no time like the present to embrace meaningful confession and repentance to cover your shame and your guilt. We live in a culture so desperately seeking absolution for every new social sin that gets invented and in every you know microaggression, every single tiny thing, and how can I how can I possibly get back to okay? There isn't a path. Self-flagellation, more working, more paying, more yeah. Come on, just more. More is the always the answer. How can I get 
peace for my soul. And Christ says, me, I can cover your shame. There is actually a stopping point. It's not making endless amends. And so we can still turn to Christ to cover our shame. And you don't have to cover it up with your busyness or your excuses or your blame shifting or your pornography or your self-pity or your self-help therapeutic you know, self-talks, uh, uh, pep talks, that is to say, I'm strong, I'm great. I'm No, Christ is great. Christ is great. You don't need to be great. Christ is great. You don't have to be strong. Christ is strong. Just press into that. That's what strength looks like. Christ can cover shame because he despised the shame of the cross. So turn to Christ and be cleansed. Not just from guilt, from shame. Point one. The second thing is just the, the power of prayer. The power of prayer. John Owen said that what an individual is in secret on his knees before God, that he is and no more. It's a bit of an overstatement, I would say. What would cause him to say something like that? John Owen, you know, he was a smart guy. Real smart guy. Why would he say something like that? Few reasons. Who you are in prayer before God is very closely related to who you are among other people. Remember 1 John 1, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And there's an astonishing claim. If we walk in the light, we live transparent lives, honest about our sin. As He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light before God related to fellowship with one another in Christ. There's a relationship there. The person who is not walking in the light with, uh, before God in their sinfulness is going to struggle mightily to have fellowship with others and be known deeply in community around Christ. Someone who is not transparent and vulnerable before God will simply struggle having rich fellowship with God. Someone whose prayer life is anemic will struggle mightily to interact with God personally and know His presence, and instead, God will be more of a construct that they know is true. And if it's true, you know, too bad if you don't like it. And since this is true, kind of this is what God has said. And it's like, okay, well, I understand that, and so here's how I should live. And, you know... Understand, understand that there's some there's some good there. There's a, you know because the Bible says so is a is a good answer. But here's the thing: that person will struggle to know God personally. Be still and know that I am God will be very difficult for that person. They have an anemic prayer life. It's difficult to understand how someone who is prayerless uh, consciously exercises ultimate dependence on God instead of themselves or planning, or the numbers, or whatever. There's a theological acknowledgement. Yes, God, I'm dependent on you. But not in a way that really brings any real security. The real security is based on what you do. James says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If that's so, why would we not be about it? 
We know the Word. The Word is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Got that. But if prayer is powerful and effective, why would we not be a people of prayer for ourselves, for our church, for our friends, for our family, for our nation? Do we believe that prayer is a, is a Christian version of like meditation or yoga or something? Or do we believe it can change lives? Do we believe it actually enters into a some kind of causal process? And by the way, we are going to see a dazzling... I have no idea how to explain it, but next week when we come back, you're going to see in the next section in your text, if you look down, it says, Gabriel brings an answer. Clearly prayer somehow in God's causal matrix of how He set it up works. It does something. It's not mouthing nothingness into the air. It's not gibberish. Listen to one pastor's characterization. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom for ringing up the butler to change the thermostat. It is a wartime walkie-talkie to call in firepower because the enemy is greater than we are. If you try to turn this into a domestic intercom to bring another pillow, it malfunctions and you wonder why. And the answer is, it's not made to be an intercom. It's made to be a wartime walkie-talkie. So perhaps as we see Daniel's prayer here, and the astonishing response again that we'll see next week, perhaps we'll reconsider the importance of prayer in our own life and the power that it holds. The final thing, for your glory, for your name's sake, how do we move the for your name's sake idea from a good sounding piece of theology in our prayer to something that deeply captures us? Deeply captures us. We must work towards making at least three things true about how we think about ourselves, God, and the world. The first is that we must love God and be more enamored by God than ourselves, by our comforts, by our dreams. We have to love God more than our comforts, more than our dreams, more than ourselves. And here's why. Because if we don't, even if we won't admit it, He will end up functionally being a servant of those things. They will play the functional role, what captures my heart. And God will help me attain those things or sustain them in my life. If, if we do not love God more than ourselves, more than our comforts, more than our dreams, we have no ability to pray from the heart. For your name's sake, really. You can say it, but at least that seeps into our heart. Unless we really God, love God that way, He will functionally end up a servant of those things, and we can mouth for your name's sake and for your glory all day long. But it'll be empty. First thing, must love God more than ourselves, our comforts, our dreams. Second, in order to have any chance of doing the first element, we have to be captured by the glory of God in His plan to begin with. We can't simply take these things that we love and subtract it out. We have to have Thomas Watson's expulsive power of a new affection. We have to taste and see that the Lord is good. We have to see God's glory. We have to be captured by it ourselves. If we have never tasted God's glory, we're not enamored by it. How do you pray for your glory, O God? What does that even mean for you? But finally, third, in order to do the second element, we have to know God personally. In word, in prayer, I would say primarily, but also in community, sacrament, service, 
discipleship. When he was asked why he robbed banks, you know what Willie Sutton said? He said, because that's where the money is. That's a profound answer. Why show up here on Sunday morning? You don't have anything better to do? More fun to do? Couldn't you be making some money? Hmm? Could you be sleeping? Why spend time in this book? Why struggle through prayer and distractedness? And oh, here I am, distracted again in prayer. Oh, here I am, falling asleep again, this and that. Why do I struggle? Because I want to see the glory of God. And that's where it is. It's where God shows His special revelation. It's where God reveals Himself. Do you want to, like Moses, say, show me your glory? Exodus 33. After everything Moses has already seen, show me your glory. Do you want to see God's glory in the community of the saints? Do you want to see God's glory in terms of how He has acted in history and what He's promised? That's right here. Do you want to be still and know that He is God and know the abiding peace? Why, why do we do these things? Because we want to taste glory. 2 Corinthians 3. And as we, with unveiled faces, unlike Moses, that we behold the glory of God, and as a result, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Why do I press into these things? Why do I press into the community of believers and the Word and prayer and service and all the rest of it? Because I want to see God's glory and be captured by it. And that's where He has purposed to show it and display it. I want to behold God's glory in creation. I want to behold His glory in the church. I want to behold it in the Word and prayer so that I can be transformed. So, how do we move past this? We have to love God more than we love ourselves. But second, in order to do that, we have to actually be captured by the glory of God ourselves. Have any chance to do that, we have to be knowing God personally. We go where the glory is. Let's pray. God, we confess that we have not lived as we ought. We have not prayed as we ought. And in fact, at one level, perhaps we cannot. But we, hear that, we pray that you would hear our plea for mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sin from where we have turned aside. We pray that if there are dark pockets of our heart that we want to keep for ourselves while showing everyone else the rest to earn us credibility, that we would repent of those things. Lord, we ask great things of a great God. We appeal to you based on the righteousness of another, the only way we can. We ask you to transform us, to make us holy to help us hate our sin for the sake of your great name in this city, in this country, in this world. Amen.